Hi everyone and welcome to season four of Studio 1.0. I'm your host Emily Chang. This is your first special podcast only introduction to Studio 1.0. We will be doing this every week on the podcast from now on in addition to sharing special extended content you won't see on TV or online. Even though the show's only 22 minutes long, these interviews often last one to two hours, and there is so much good stuff that hits the cutting room floor, it nearly breaks me, and I drive my editor, Aaron Black, crazy. But from now on, no longer. That is why podcasts are so awesome. If you haven't listened to Studio 1.0 before, please check out seasons one, two, and three. We've interviewed people like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, COO Sheryl Sandberg, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen, screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, and many more really cool influencers in the tech and media world. We've got a great lineup this season, starting with LinkedIn CEO Jeff Weiner. I also get to visit Napster co-founder and former Facebook president Sean Parker, the guy played by Justin Timberlake in The Social Network. I spent the day at his super sweet pad in LA, which happens to be right next to the Playboy Mansion, no joke. Then stopped by to see Showtime's David Nevins, the guy behind hits like Billions and Homeland. Later on, we'll bring you Padmastery Warrior. She is one of the most high profile women in Silicon Valley. She just started a new job as US CEO for the Chinese electric car maker Next EV. Yes, she is challenging Elon Musk, and we all know that is no small feat. I'll also talk to GV CEO, formerly Google Ventures CEO, Bill Maris, about his quest to extend human life. And I'll speak with General Keith Alexander, the guy who was running the NSA during the revelations of Edward Snowden. But first, Jeff Weiner says he never aspired to be CEO, yet now he finds himself leading a public company that's determined to prove Wall Street wrong. He rose through the ranks of Warner Brothers and Yahoo before LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman made him a proposition to help run the professional social network that he'd started. It was a match made in Silicon Valley heaven. Weiner became the CEO he never expected to be, and Hoffman stayed on as chairman. LinkedIn now has over 400 million members in 200 countries, but faces its biggest challenge yet. A challenge so big, Jeff Weiner donated his own $14 million stock bonus to his employees. Joining me today on Studio 1.0, LinkedIn CEO Jeff Weiner. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having it's me. Great it's great to have to you. Here. So we're going to start with the elephant in the room. Okay. After your first quarter earnings report, the stock plummeted 40 plus percent. It still hasn't recovered. Is the magnitude of that market reaction fair? You know, who's to say whether or not it's fair? It's a market. That's what markets do. And markets determine the day-to-day -day price. We, through our execution, will determine the long-term value. I think it was a surprise. We weren't expecting that kind of response. And, you know, when you look at the core elements of our business, uh, they remain healthy. If you look at North American field sales for our flagship recruiter product, same store sales growth there has remained consistent over the last few years. Sponsored updates, which is the core of our marketing solutions business line, uh, still the fastest growing business we have at scale. And post the launch of our reimagined flagship application on mobile, we've actually seen an acceleration in engagement on both mobile and desktop. So the core elements of the business remain healthy. Analysts went so far as to say, we're sorry, we got it wrong. I mean, do you think there's something that they don't get, that investors aren't understanding? I think it's expectations. I think, you know, companies that experience hyper growth for sustained periods of time, I think there's a natural inclination at times to extrapolate those growth rates out over long periods of time. 
and in the history of every hypergrowth company, literally every hypergrowth company, there comes an inflection point where the expectations of analysts or investors start to outstrip the fundamentals of the business. The question isn't whether or not that's going to happen. The question is how companies execute through that. The analyst concern is that their thesis, their very thesis about what LinkedIn is, was wrong. That they thought you were a fast growth company, but instead you're a slower growth company, more like a software as a service company. What's right? Well, I think it's all relative. Uh, growing at 30 percent, uh, growing in the mid-20s, that's still pretty healthy growth by virtually any standard, any measure. You gave a rousing speech to employees at an all-hands meeting and you said, LinkedIn is the same company it was before this happened, you are the same team, I'm the same CEO. How does Jeff Weiner, the person, feel about this? Not the CEO, but you. Like, does it sting a little? You know, I'm not sure I'd say it stings. There was some surprise. Uh, you want to make sure you're there for the people that matter most. You know, first and foremost, are we still able to create value for our members and customers? And nothing whatsoever has changed in that regard. Uh, you want to make sure our employees are okay, especially those that haven't experienced something like this before. You know, there's a number of us, especially on the leadership team, that have worked at companies that have gone through uh, similar periods. Uh, you know, some of the most valuable companies in the world have gone through significant corrections. Uh, a few of those companies have gone through multiple corrections, and they never lose sight of their long-term sense of purpose, their long-term mission, their long-term vision. It's about continuing to execute, so that's where we want to remain focused. TechCrunch published a post titled, LinkedIn's problems run deeper than valuation. LinkedIn is now, at best, a business card holder, at worst, a delivery service for spam. How do you respond to that? I think everyone has their opinions, and it's not going to defocus us in any way. It's also interesting to see those comments now, but the company is the exact same company it was the day before earnings. So I think our core product offering has never been stronger. I think we've got the best roadmap we've had certainly in the seven years that I've been at the company. And we continue to see gains in engagement. And that's what it's all about. It's about creating value for members, about creating value for customers. So do you think you can reaccelerate growth? That's certainly the objective over time is as we continue to execute, you want to build into what remain very large addressable opportunities. Has this latest situation, has this impacted morale at all? I think, if anything, it brings people closer together. And the, the more you go through these kinds of challenges, you meet these challenges head on, and you are successful in recognizing that nothing fundamental has changed, uh, I think the stronger the team becomes, I think the stronger we become as a company. You've written and spoken extensively about compassionate management. Give me an example of where you applied that at LinkedIn. Well, I apply it, I try to apply it and aspire to apply it in every interaction. So compassionate management is just putting yourself in the other person's shoes, understanding their perspective. And classically defined, you do that for the sake of alleviating somebody's suffering. But more broadly defined, within a work environment, it doesn't need to be limited to alleviating suffering. It can be whenever I'm in a position where I can help you. And when we're working together, you know, all too often, and you probably experience it like everyone else experiences it, you're going to be in discussions throughout the day with your coworkers, with colleagues, with people from outside the company, and you're going to disagree. And more often than not, when people find themselves in those situations, they just start to assume nefarious intention. Mm -hmm. Someone's being political, they're trying to get one over on you, it's a zero-sum game. And that may be the furthest thing from the person's mind. They may be having a bad day. You may have triggered something in them that happened long before they ever met you. Uh, you may be talking about something that they're not as knowledgeable about. 
and they don't want to show that kind of vulnerability. There's a whole host of reasons there may be tension in the room. Some of the most quote-unquote successful CEOs have been pretty ruthless, mm -hmm. like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. They're actually known for being completely uncompassionate. Why is that the best way? I think different styles work for different people, work for different companies, work for different situations. I think the, the worst thing somebody could do is try to emulate what somebody else does because that person has had success. You have to understand what works for you and it starts with being authentic to yourself. And what works for Steve or what worked for Steve, what works for Alon currently, and people like that uh, may not work and more often than not does not work for other people who try to employ that style and people just don't follow. So I think it depends. You know, for me personally, I, I find that taking the time to understand what it is you're trying to accomplish and how I can help you uh, works better than projecting my own worldview onto you. And I think that's a, a mistake that a lot of younger, less experienced executives make. That was certainly a mistake that I made. I expected my team, you know, 10, 12, 14 years ago when I was at Yahoo, I expected my team for the most part to do things the way I did them. And that's going to lead to nothing but frustration. Your relationship with Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, has been called the happiest, one of the happiest partnerships in business history. I hadn't history. heard that, that <laughs> uh, superlative yet. What is it that you think makes it work so well between the two of you? Uh, there's a lot of mutual respect between Reid and I. And we were friends before this happened. Uh, you know, Reed will tell you, if you ask Reed the question, it turns out that uh, he'll, he'll tell you the story, and it's almost verbatim the way I tell the story. So there's probably something to that, just that in and of itself, the fact that we see the relationship so similarly. One of the most frequently asked questions I got once I started was, what's my relationship like with Reed? Mm -hmm. And I think that was code for what kind of drama is there <laughs> right. in the transition from the founder and the former CEO to the newly hired professional CEO. And uh, there was no drama. So what people didn't realize was I didn't join LinkedIn in spite of Reed. Mm -hmm. I joined LinkedIn in large part because of Reed and because of the opportunity to continue to work together. He's one of the most thoughtful people I've ever had the chance to work with. So what happens when you guys disagree? We almost never disagree. We've disagreed on, uh, on a couple of occasions and uh, they are always related to personnel and uh, it's never related to objective things about the business. It's so never been happened? related to our strategy. Uh, there was interesting learning. Uh, that'll remain between the two of us, but I think there was interesting learning. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, you've said you never aspired to become CEO. Mm. How do you become CEO if you don't aspire to it? I, I didn't aspire to be a CEO because of what I had seen in terms of CEOs, particularly within publicly traded companies, and that can be a, a pretty rough mm -hmm. ride. And so for me, it was never about the title of CEO. It was about a, a sense of purpose. You've given a lot of thought to the future of the workforce and how it's changing. And I would love it if you could paint that picture for us. Uh, Youth-based unemployment is becoming an increasingly uh, significant issue. Uh, in certain Southern European countries, you've got youth-based unemployment hovering around 50%. I mean, that's the kind of thing that starts to tear apart society if it's allowed to be sustained for too long, where people don't feel like they have access to opportunity, they become disenfranchised, they don't feel like they have a voice, and that's when bad stuff starts to happen. You've got the increasing fragmentation of work 
by virtue of the, the sharing economy and some of these new uh, marketplace environments where people can start to set their own hours. Let's talk about that. How does LinkedIn plan to account for the 1099 economy, the freelancers, the Uber drivers, the delivery people, people who are freelancing or have multiple jobs? Yeah, so a lot of those people have their profiles on LinkedIn because that's how they represent their professional identity to the world. And that's how opportunity accrues to them. Do you think it's a dangerous trend, this, this move towards freelancing? I mean, do you think companies like Uber should be thinking hard about making their workers full-time or giving them benefits? Mm. I don't know that I'd say it's dangerous per se, but clearly uh, things are changing and we're going to have to revisit as a society the laws and the regulations that govern the way companies used to operate. You know, when you're working, there should be certain benefits that are afforded to individuals. The extent to which that's mandated uh, and that the company has to offer that in a formal basis or the extent to which there are third-party platforms that facilitate the way in which uh, individuals are able to, to generate those benefits, I think this is going to continue to evolve. I think what's very clear is if we continue to think we can apply the legacy way of doing things in uh, a new environment and a new economy, I think that's going to lead to some pretty significant unintended consequences that are going to do some damage. You've said that creating economic opportunity is the greatest issue of our time. Women are still incredibly underrepresented in technology. Why do you think that is? I think, one, you have a pipelining issue where you may have had historically um, fewer graduates with uh, specific degrees in engineering, per se. Uh, as that now starts to improve, which is wonderful, uh, hopefully we're going to see the gap start to close. And so it's incumbent upon all of us within the tech industry to make sure that we are casting as wide a net as possible when we're looking for the best talent. Uh, with regard to uh, what happens once the career has started, I think it's really important to recognize unconscious bias and uh, where people are making choices in terms of promotions, in terms of pay, that are not explicitly being driven uh, by any kind of uh, objective in terms of uh, treating people unfairly, but by virtue of relating to people like the decision maker. And that creates all kinds of unconscious biases. And the more cognizant we become that we have a tendency to gravitate towards people like ourselves and the unintended consequences of that, uh, I think the faster we can solve some of those issues. Women represent 20% of technical roles at LinkedIn, 30% of leadership roles. Are you happy with that? No. Am I happy with it? No. Is it moving in the right direction? Yes. Uh, we want as diverse and representative and an, as inclusive a base of leadership and employees as we have for our membership. And uh, that's certainly the goal. Would you advocate affirmative action or hiring women just to see what happens? I don't think we should be hiring people to see what happens. I don't think we should be hiring people in a way that reduces the bar. I think we should be hiring the best possible person for the role. And one of the things that we can all do to improve diversity is employ techniques like the Rooney Rule, which the NFL has used to great effect. So they're not necessarily mandating you have to hire these kinds of people, whether that's gender-based or ethnic-based. What they are mandating is that you need to interview people that is uh, representative of the, the, and more inclusive of the population that you're drawing from. And uh, they've had amazing success with regard to improvements in diversity and inclusion as a result of that. You spent a lot of years at Yahoo, and I'm sure you've been following the situation closely. What is your take on what's going on at Yahoo and 
How do you see this playing out for them? I think turnarounds are arguably the most difficult thing you can do in business, full stop. Uh, I think trying to change the culture of an organization is almost prohibitively difficult. I think Marissa walked into a situation that she must have known was going to be challenging to the point where there was probably not a huge probability of being able to turn it around and you know credit to her for for still taking on the role and I think she was able to to make some changes there uh, in terms of the culture in terms of the development culture in terms of the transition to mobile but that's a that's a really really challenging situation in terms of not just the culture, but in terms of the, the legacy assets and the legacy value proposition, the way in which people used Yahoo, the world has evolved so dramatically from those earliest days of the, the consumer web. And so trying to navigate that, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. It's really hard. In terms of where they are now, uh, you know, it sounds like they are very seriously evaluating to sell the company. Is that uh, the right call? I'm not in Marissa's shoes. I, I can't see the leading indicators. I don't know what their future roadmap looks like, and maybe that's one of the reasons Marissa has been reluctant uh, to sell the company historically, because she may have been excited or confident in the plan they have to continue to turn things around and create value. So there's a whole host of variables where it's so much easier when you're on the outside looking in to think that you know best, but you really have to put yourself in her shoes to understand what's going on. So what do you think is the best and the worst case scenario for Yahoo? It needs to be in the hands of someone that recognizes it's still being used by hundreds of millions of people on a global basis. Uh, hopefully, if it is sold, it's sold to an acquirer who recognizes the value that not only Yahoo creates in the world today, but that it can continue to create going forward. And I think that's really how Marissa is assessing her options right now. I think she's trying to do what's best in terms of maximizing that kind of value. How do you make sure LinkedIn is not the next Yahoo? Do you worry about the company being disrupted? Uh, if I didn't worry, I wouldn't be doing my job. Right? Only the paranoid survive. For us, it's about uh, the right level of focus in terms of the broader landscape and never losing sight of the game that we're defining for ourselves. To the extent we start to expand too quickly from that core, we leave that core vulnerable to those disruptors. Uh, to the extent we are drawing resources from the core to fuel potential growth in the future, that's when you become vulnerable. To the extent you start to drink your own Kool-Aid and you believe that you are, uh, you know, your moats are impenetrable, uh, that's when you're going to invite the, the very significant disruption. So we want to remain focused on playing our own game and at the same time obviously pay close attention to the way technology continues to evolve, to the way the competitive landscape continues to evolve, but you, you never want to lose sight of the, you're playing your own game. Facebook seems to be chewing up all of the media ad dollars. Can LinkedIn drive significant ad revenue from yes. media? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, within our context, uh, B2B remains a, a very large opportunity for us. There's tens of billions of dollars being spent on B2B uh, within an online capacity, and it's highly fragmented, and uh, it can be highly inefficient. And we're in a position by virtue of our audience, the ability to help our marketing partners to target the right decision makers. So we're going to continue to focus uh, very aggressively on building out that part of our business. One thing you have on Facebook is China. Uh, you guys have uh, found a way to penetrate China. How, how would you rate your progress in China? Do you feel like you've cracked the code? Do you feel like there's a lot more work to be done there? 
I would hardly suggest we've cracked the code. China is a, a very challenging market, a uh, highly competitive landscape, and it has certainly exceeded our expectations. I mean, we're, we're now up to 18 million members. When we started, uh, you know, roughly a year ago, we had amassed uh, roughly 4 million members in English over 10 years. So we've seen that uh, substantially grow by virtue of localizing our core offering. Uh, in terms of our core businesses, talent solutions, marketing solutions, et cetera, uh, there's uh, a lot of room for growth there as well, and it's still very early days. We've been focused on getting the, the membership experience right before we're going to prioritize monetization. Uh, we're pleased where we are, but uh, still a lot of work to be done. You've mentioned that you've had to make compromises in China. You've had to ask users to censor themselves based on what the Chinese government wants to see or hear. How, how, how do you actually navigate that process? How often has that happened? Yeah, it, it happens very seldom, thankfully. Uh, we started to navigate that process before we launched. I mean, we spent the better part of 18 months understanding uh, who we were as a company, our culture, our values, uh, what operating in China would mean in terms of compliance. And uh, despite all of those discussions, you know, the first time you're asked to uh, censor a member or uh, take down a profile, uh, it's gut-wrenching. You know, that's those members and creating value for those members is why we do what we do. A at the same time, we recognize that China uh, plays an enormous role in the global economy. And by virtue of our presence in China, uh, we can not only help connect our Chinese members to opportunity and enable them to live the kind of lives that they want to live, but we can connect them to opportunities outside of China. We can better connect companies within China to the global economy, and that's going to create more value for everybody. Do you think that Facebook and Twitter still have a chance in China, or are they just so different that there's just no way that they're going to be able to make it work there? The, the fundamental differences are that we're a platform that's about creating economic opportunity. And uh, the Chinese are very focused on expanding the ranks of their middle class. In Twitter and Facebook, you have platforms that are far more oriented towards communications and facilitating the way in which people communicate with one another. And so it's different. It doesn't necessarily mean it's not possible, but it's different. What does LinkedIn look like five years from now? So five years from now, I think you're going to continue to see us focus on these core pillars in terms of value propositions. And one of the things that we're just starting to tap into is what we call anticipatory computing. I'm on my way to a meeting. I can't tell you the number of times I wished I had done a little bit of homework in terms of the person I'm going to be meeting with. It's going to make that meeting more effective. As I'm walking into the meeting, we have the ability to suggest how you know this person, things that you have in common. You can start to apply that across a whole host of the ways in which people are working today. People increasingly use LinkedIn as their corporate directory because that's where the most relevant, up-to-date information is about the individual. And so how we can leverage that to create more value within a company, I think we've just scratched the surface of as well. So what's next for you? You're a fairly young guy. Is this, is LinkedIn it? Are we talk oh, about I thought you meant like today. And I was <laughs> heading back to the office after this. Uh, what's next for me? So, uh, you know, I couldn't imagine being in another job in terms of my interests and uh, the value that I'd like to be a part of creating in the world. I, I can't think of anything more important than creating economic opportunity for people, especially in the day and age that we live in. And I think that's only going to become more profoundly important. 
going back to something we were talking about earlier with regard to compassion and managing compassionately, uh, one thing I would like to become increasingly involved in is ensuring that compassion is taught in every school in the country. Mm -hmm. The same way we teach math, the same way we teach reading, the same way we teach writing. Mm -hmm. And I used to refer to compassion as being equally important and a friend corrected me and said it's more important because it's the foundation upon which all of that learning should be taking mm -hmm. place. Compassion can be taught and just by virtue of understanding what compassion is, just the definition alone, I think makes it that much more likely that people are going to want to practice it. And I, this is something that we can do, and we can measure the outcomes as well. LinkedIn just released its first television commercial, mm. You're the Voice. <laughs> I, I think you might have a future in uh, commercial voiceovers. <laughs> Thank you. Can you give us a rendition? <laughs> <laughs> you got to wait to watch the commercial. <laughs> Um, Jeff Weiner, CEO of LinkedIn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you us. very it's much for having me. You. Thank, thank you. And if you want to judge Jeff Weiner's voiceover talents for yourself, here's a listen to LinkedIn's first ever television commercial. When I was a kid, every night before I went to bed, my dad would tell me I could do anything I set my mind to. Believing it changed everything. You're closer than you think. Next week on Studio 1.0, Sean Parker, Napster co-founder and Facebook president, also the guy who was depicted by Justin Timberlake in the movie The Social Network. I get to hang out at his L.A. mansion, and it's an episode you don't want to miss. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Emily Chang TV and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. This is Studio 1.0.